from His Holiness the Dalai Lama of Tibet. Out of my experience, I tell my friends wherever I go about the importance of love and compassion. Deep down, we must have real affection for each other, a clear realization or recognition of our shared human status. The talk tonight is about compassion and how we realize compassion through the recognition of our shared human status. One of the big existential questions of being human, which I'm sure you've realized by now, is how do we deal with the immense amount of suffering there is in this world on so many levels? You know, on the personal level, as we sit in this hall and work with our anger or our uh, self, self-hatred or feelings of judgment or aversion or craving. On the level of our communities and our families when we wish others well and we realize that they aren't always happy, they aren't always healthy, we aren't always safe. And on the global level with some of the issues that have come up, you know, how do we hold the suffering that we see in this world that seems uh, more intense and greater than ever before? So how do we hold all this suffering? How do we deal with it? Uh, we humans have come up with some creative strategies over the uh, millennium. We often try denial pretending that it doesn't exist, which I actually think is our cultural favorite. Uh, (laughs) You know, we hide old people away in nursing homes and pretend that the homeless don't exist, et cetera, et cetera. Or we try repression. Me? I don't get angry. (laughs) We try ignoring suffering. We try aversion, pushing it away. Some of these strategies do appear to offer us some temporary relief, and uh, that's probably why we continue to use them. But what we start to see over time is that none of these strategies really offer us um, an abiding peace, which is what most of us are looking for. So Buddhism offers us a couple of other options for dealing with suffering, um, namely developing compassion and wisdom. Compassion is a central part of the Buddha's teachings. It's said that the teachings are like a great bird with two wings, wisdom and compassion. And both are needed for the bird to fly. It's pretty hard for a bird to fly with one wing. So we need both compassion and wisdom in our practice. Compassion is the quality of a heart that is able to stay open and caring in face of suffering. And wisdom is understanding how life is, understanding the natural laws of the universe, and developing equanimity, developing the ability to stay balanced in the face of suffering. So we can see that these two work together, this open, caring quality of heart and this understanding of life as it is. These two great wings, they balance each other, and they strengthen each other. They work together. 
The Buddha was once asked by a leading disciple, would it be true to say that a part of our training is for the development of love and compassion? And the Buddha replied, no, it would not be true to say this. It would be true to say that the whole of our training is for the development of love and compassion. So that's the goal of what we are doing here, whether we're doing uh, the Brahma Vihara practice or the mindfulness practice, to develop these qualities of unconditional love and gentle compassion. What is compassion? It's actually a quality that is often misunderstood, I think. I, de- I define it as the tender, caring quality of the heart in the face of suffering. The metta that we've been doing, this is oriented towards the good in others, towards seeing the good in other, others, and this evokes kindness or this wishing well. Compassion is oriented towards seeing the suffering in our own and other people's lives, other beings' lives. And this evokes the caring heart. I've been told that the translation of of compassion or karuna um, from Pali is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. It's that natural quality that we have to care when we see others in pain. For me, compassion is a kind of sweet, bittersweet quality, sweet, bittersweet feeling. It's pleasant and sweet because of the connection that we feel. When we feel compassion, we recognize our shared humanity with others. And yet it's kind of poignant also because it accepts the full spectrum of our human experience, which includes suffering. Compassion is a pleasant feeling. It's one of the divine abodes, one of the Brahma Viharas. So it's a heavenly, a heavenly kind of feeling. So fully developed compassion includes the ability to hold suffering with equanimity, realizing that it's part of the human condition. It doesn't condone suffering, we'll get into that later, but it realizes or accepts it as part of life. By developing compassion, we can cultivate a heart that is able to stay wide and open and for all of life, for the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. It's a heart that can stay open because it has no need to reject any part of life. One of my favorite uh, quotes to describe uh, compassion is uh, a short quote from Ryokan, the Japanese hermit monk. He says, Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. No aversion there, just care, just an open heart. However, developing compassion is a purification process, just like developing metta is a purification process. And so when we work with compassion, whether actively as a Brahma Vihara, whether um, 
we work with it when suffering comes up in our practice or in the mindfulness practice, it doesn't always feel divine. <laughs> we often find out what compassion is by experiencing what it's not, by experiencing the near enemies of pity or grief or despair, which often come up when we look at suffering. Sharon tells a story in her book, Loving Kindness, of when she was in Russia, and uh, she had a translator working with her, and she kept getting the sense that, comp that the word compassion wasn't getting translated right. Uh, she doesn't know Russian, but something just didn't feel right, so she asked the translator how he was describing compassion. And he said, oh, I describe a state of becoming terribly overcome with someone's sorrow like having a stake through your heart and having the burden of someone's pain burdening you too. <laughs> um, we laugh, but actually, sometimes we really think that is what compassion is, that unless we're overcome with grief as somebody else is suffering, we're really not compassionate. But compassion doesn't need to feel like a burden. Oh we, may, oh, we may pity somebody. We may mistake that for compassion. We may feel like feeling sorry for somebody uh, when we see them suffering is compassion. But that's actually a form of diversion, and it's a, a aversion, not diversion, and, and a denial of our connection. It's making that person other than us. Deep compassion is always connected and understands our shared humanity. Pema Chodron says, Compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. Only when we know our own darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others. Compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. So it's not like uh, when we face suffering and, and we wish to develop compassion and instead we feel grief or despair or uh, some other uh, feeling that's similar to that. It's not like these are wrong. It's just that they're not balanced. They're not balanced with this quality of wisdom, of acceptance, of equanimity. Our ability to feel compassion is directly related to making peace with our own suffering and the existential suffering of being human. As we're able to work with our own pain and our own sorrow with balance, with acceptance, and with care, then we're also able to extend that same care and compassion to others who are in pain. <coughs> so again, we have to bring in this quality of equanimity, this deep acceptance of life as it is, this connected acceptance of life as it is. It's not like an indifference, oh, life is just that way, there's suffering. It's a connection also to that suffering, but yet, an acceptance of it. 
the equanimity protects us and gives strength to our compassion. They work together. I think when we look at our own suffering deeply, we start to understand that we're basically the same as everyone else, that we all have seeds of hatred and anger and greed within us, and that we're all very vulnerable in this world of change. And when we can stay open to our own vulnerability in this way, this opens the possibility of compassion for others when they're vulnerable. This is from um, my grandfather's blessings by um, Rachel, somebody or the other. I can never remember her last name. And I have three quotes from her in this talk. (laughs) Compassion begins with the acceptance of what is most human in ourselves, what is most capable of suffering. In intending to our own capacity to suffer, we can uncover a simple and profound connection between our own vulnerability and the vulnerability in others. Experiencing this allows us to find an instinctive kindness towards life, which is the foundation of all compassion and genuine service. What we start to see is the blessing that working with our own suffering offers us the blessing of opening the heart of compassion. If you look at some of the most compassionate people in this world, you see that they are people who have suffered deeply and understand this deeply. I mean, we often think, uh, number one, of the Dalai Lama of Tibet, who has been through, him and his people have been through horrendous um, times with the takeover of their country and the destruction of their culture, and yet the Dalai Lama is one of the most compassionate people on this planet. Or I think of Deepama, uh, a a woman teacher, a Burmese teacher in our own tradition who died several years ago. But in her early life she suffered a lot. She lost um, at least one child, I think it was a couple of children, um, and her husband died. And uh, she was overcome with grief, and she began to practice and became an incredible uh, role model and an incredible teacher of meditation and was known for her deep sense of love and compassion. So we can see that our own um, trials and tribulation in practice can help us to develop this uh, quality of compassion. There's a, uh, t- in the Tibetan tradition, there's a little prayer that um, is sometimes said before uh, yogis begin to meditate. Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and suffering on this journey, so that my heart may be truly awakened, and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and suffering on this journey. It's kind of interesting, no? (laughs) It's um, a true bodhisattva uh, ideal there. But perhaps we can learn to see our trials and tribulations, our difficulties, 
as the um, grist for the mill that helps us to develop uh, freedom and compassion. So perhaps we can learn to welcome our struggles because we can see that they are a doorway for opening our heart of compassion. Some of you at this point in the retreat are facing what we call uh, our karmic knots. Those are basically the, the places of deep wounding that, that we work with for many, many years. You probably know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> it's different for different people, but these places perhaps of a fear of rejection or uh, self-hatred, um, lots of judgment, deep loneliness, now, most of us have at least one or two of these karmic knots, um, or you probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> you probably wouldn't um, be moved to practice. As we touch these places, they, as they open to us, um, we can learn to hold them with care. We can use this as a way to develop our compassion. You know, usually these places come up in us and we just want them to go away. Uh, we use all of those strategies that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk. But we might want to try another strategy. We might want to try uh, the strategy of compassion. You know, can we learn to care about our pain? And when we're able to do this, when we're able to um, hold our suffering with a sense of care, it brings a deep sense of interconnectedness with others because we start to understand our shared humanity. We recognize ourselves and others. One time when I was on retreat in this very hall, I was having an experience of loneliness. I was feeling very lonely. I was single at the time and just, um, you know, loneliness. And as I was sitting there with this loneliness, just being with it, it suddenly occurred to me that all over the planet, there were probably millions of people feeling lonely at that, at that time. And then I reflected on the fact that everybody feels lonely sometime or the other. I don't think there's anybody who gets by without that. And just this understanding of this humanity, of the feeling of... Um, Loneliness, it just cracked my heart open. And I felt this flood of compassion for myself and for all of us, really, for all of us humans, um, doing the best we can in this uh, realm that includes both joy and sorrow. And it turned from an isolated experience of loneliness into an actually very um, beautiful feeling of connection with others. That, that connection of compassion. A lot of times when um, ambulances uh, go by, I get um, very touched. I, I get this kind of poignant feeling of compassion. And it's not actually um, usually for the person in the ambulance. It's for the fact that um, we humans, we're, we, we really are trying hard. You know, we really are trying to take care of each other. And kind of that, that holding that sense of um, 
just appreciating how difficult it is and how much we try, how hard we try. Now, I also want to mention if there's people here who aren't suffering, that that's quite all right, too. Um, <laughs> you don't have to go looking for it. <laughs> you know, sometimes when we give talks about a certain theme, people say, well, oh my, I'm not experiencing that. I better go looking for it. No, um, there are actually times when we have retreats that are quite peaceful and, um, and pleasant. And uh, if you're having such a retreat, well, please enjoy it. So um, I have a little quote here. Um, let's just say it's mind-expanding. Ram Dass related a wonderful story about um, this. Well, you, you'll find out what this is. Coming from a good progressive Jewish family, he was very much interested in justice. One day he was kvetching with his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, about the suffering in God's creation. And his guru cut him short, saying, Look, Ramdas, suffering is perfect. And Ramdas, shocked by this apparently callous statement, began to marshal his intellectual resources to argue with his guru. But Neem Karoli stopped him again and said, And Ramdas, your attempt to end suffering is also perfect. A taste there of equanimity. There's also, um, I can't resist another quote by the Dalai Lama, which is um, also about equanimity, but a bit lighter. He says, if you have fear of some pain or suffering, you should examine whether there's anything you can do about it. If you can, there's no need to worry about it. And if you cannot do anything, then there's also no need to worry. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, it's true, no? <laughs> But this acceptance that I'm talking about is not passivity. This is often a concern that comes up for people. They say, well, if, we're, if we care and we accept everything, well, then, um, then uh, you know, we won't do anything, and that's so passive. It's not true at all, because we actually see that when we care, of course we're motivated to try to alleviate suffering. Acceptance doesn't mean that we don't do anything, that we don't try to help others. It means that we help others without attachment to the result. It means that we, that we tr help others because we care and not because they have to be fixed, because we can't bear the suffering. I learned a lot about this. Um, I work in um, community mental health in a town in Western Mass. And um, it's not a big, it's a small, it's a big town or a small city, but there's a lot of um, social problems, a lot of poverty and violence and um, drugs and difficult situations. And when I first worked at this clinic, I started about eight years ago, um, I was pretty overwhelmed. I, I pretty much figured that I had to fix everything. But, you know, that was my job. My clients would come in, and I had to somehow make everything okay. And um, it was pretty tiring. <laughs> um, it, and I think the reason why is because I, I, 
I didn't want to be with that much suffering. I wanted it to go away. And over time, uh, over time uh, I learned to develop more equanimity to kind of match my, my caring in the situation. I began to realize, first of all, that I couldn't fix everything. There's this equanimity phrase, it's things are as they are. Sometimes I even say that to myself when I'm in situations where I feel like um, somehow I have to fix it and I can't. Oh, things are as they are. And I realized that the roots of the suffering of many of my clients were very deep. And I learned that perhaps what's important is to care and to be a witness, to offer what, um, whatever I can, but not with attachment that things have to change. I found that as I've been able to do that more, um, it's been a lot easier. <laughs> and it's been a lot, um, it's been a much nicer experience, I think, for both me and my clients. Nobody really wants to be fixed anyway, right? And then I think as we're able to be with suffering more, we can start seeing a bigger picture, too. I started to see that not only were there difficulties in the lives of my clients, but there was actually a lot of strengths, too. You know, a lot of them have very strong family ties, or they're very generous and help each other out. You know, uh, strengths that I may have overlooked if I just felt like everything had to be fixed. So when we have compassion without attachment to change, without attachment to result, we often can see things with much more clarity. We can see the larger picture because we're not lost in our aversion to the suffering. So I've, I've, I've mentioned briefly how to develop compassion. I'd just like to talk about it a little bit more. Basically, uh, we develop compassion by looking at how we react to our own pain. And so we get a chance here to practice um, compassion, for example, when these karmic knots come up that I mentioned. You know, can we turn towards them with a sense of gentleness and care? Or many of you have been dealing with the five classic uh, hindrances or obstacles to meditation, which are um, wanting, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. So we've heard, you know, a number of you come in. <laughs> And everybody experiences these hindrances at some time or the other, you know, and maybe sleepy, and then we, um, on top of uh, the sleepiness, we beat ourselves up for being sleepy and think that we're a bad meditator because we're sleepy. Perhaps we can try just caring about the fact that we're sleepy while we make as many adjustments as we can to improve our energy. Or, or sometimes um, yogis come in and complain, you know, I can't stand my meditation object. You know, I keep going off. Um, and, and I'm a bad meditator. <laughs> but can we learn um, to just uh, turn towards that with some sense of care again, understanding that we can't control if our minds go off. We can bring them back when they go off, but we can't, we can't make them obey us. working with, with wanting, working with aversion. You know, these ways that we all, 
suffer? Can we hold them with gentleness? It's different. That's not what we usually do. (laughs) It's usually, go away, I don't like you. It's very healing. So we develop this sense of compassion by turning towards our own suffering and relating to it with a sense of care. And as we do that, then we see that we can relate to others' suffering with a sense of care. And we stretch ourselves, you know, we practice with the little things and we build up. developing the equanimity and the compassion together. One of my favorite quotes is by Charlotte Joko Beck. She says, What is created in this practice, what grows, is the amount of life I can hold without it upsetting me or dominating me. At first, the space is quite restricted. Then it's a bit bigger, and then it's bigger still. It need never cease to grow. And the enlightened state is that enormous and compassionate space. But as long as we live, we find that there is a limit to our container size, and it is at that point we must practice. And how do you know where this cutoff point is? We are at that point when we feel any degree of upset, of anger. It's no mystery at all. And the strength of our practice is how big that container gets. So we're creating this very, this larger and larger container, this enormous and compassionate space, by practicing at our limits, practicing at the places where we get upset, practicing bringing um, compassion and equanimity to those places. We've talked a little bit about how the um, compassion practice is done formally, the Brahma-Vihara practice. And I'm just going to review this just for you to have the information if you decide to work with it. One way is that we use the same metaphrases that we've been using and we orient them towards suffering. Some people find that they naturally have done this or do this anyway. You know, that when we visualize somebody, we, we, we do tune into their suffering. And so we can use the same phrases may you be safe, may you be happy, but just um, orienting them towards the suffering instead of towards um, the good, as we do with the metta practice. There is actually a formal um, compassion phrase that is also used. The phrase is, may I, or may you be free from suffering. I think it's important if we use this phrase to just be clear that um, it's not you have to be free from suffering for me to be okay or your suffering has to go away. <laughs> it's, it's a gentle wish but with this um, non-attachment to results. So sometimes it can be a little tricky. For that reason, I like an alternative phrase that I think um, captures the same essence but... Um, may help us not be quite as attached, and that's, I care about my pain, or I care about your pain. 
And I use this sometimes when I find myself kind of in aversion to my aversion or in aversion to my pain. I will just bring up that phrase, oh, I care about my pain. And it can have a great softening effect. So we can use some of these um, techniques if we practice the compassion formally, or we can also develop uh, compassion informally through the mindfulness practice or just through practicing relating to our pain with a sense of care. So how do our metta practice and compassion practice affect how we relate in this world? This is a very important question. We may come to meditation practice to figure out how to find some peace with ourselves and with our own suffering. But ultimately, the question is how we manifest this understanding and manifest this peace in the world, in our lives. Again, I want to emphasize this link between knowing our own sorrow and um, being kind. And I'd like to read a poem that, um, for those of you who've been to a lot of retreats, you've probably heard it before. It's a rather popular one, but I think it expresses this link so um, beautifully that I'd like to read it again. It's called Kindness by Naomi Shahib Nye. And when she wrote this poem, she was traveling in... um, South America, so some of the references she makes um, are from her trip there. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, All this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. Making that connection between um, embracing our full humanity and acting with kindness and compassion in this world.
the Dalai Lama said, my, the true re, my true religion is kindness. This is a sentiment that I share. I think of some times when, um, in the past, when I've been in deep pain, perhaps feeling quite raw, and it only takes the smallest act of kindness to just fill me with a sense of um, gentleness. You know, even just the smile of a clerk in the grocery store or somebody who opens, opens the door. Just a small act of kindness can make such a difference in this world. So compassion is about accepting the truth of suffering, but that doesn't mean that it's passive. We also try to alleviate suffering and bring kindness into the world. It's just natural. How could we do otherwise with a caring heart? I have... um, Little, another Dalai Lama story that I like that uh, is about compassion. He says, Last year we dismantled several large poultry farms in the Tibetan settlements in South India out of compassion. It happened like this. One day I went to visit a small lake to offer food to the fish that we had previously freed there. On my way back, someone said, By the way, did you see the poultry farm? All of a sudden, I had a vision where I saw large groups of chickens marching along carrying banners on which it was written, the Dalai Lama not only saves fishes, but even feeds them. What does he do for us poor chickens? (laughs) I felt terribly sad and sorry for the chickens. The next day, I discussed the problem with the relevant officials. If, for economic reasons, there are no alternatives, then I have nothing to say. See, equanimity. (laughs) But if there is an alternative, please think seriously about dismantling these poultry farms. It seems they agreed, and within a few weeks, about 8,000 chickens were released in our settlement. Another one or 2,000 in another settlement, and some more in another settlement I can't pronounce. We no longer raise poultry in our settlements. I was deeply moved by my people's response and promised to live for at least another 20 years. I said this under the influence of my emotion. It was not a prediction. <laughs> so that, um, that natural sense of wanting to alleviate suffering when we have an open and compassionate heart. I'd like to end my talk with um, a story called Seeing the Buddha Seed, which is also from um, my grandfather's blessings. The act of seeing can transform the person who sees and cause us to see differently for the rest of our lives. Flying back from Florida a week before Christmas, I found myself seated in a section of the plane completely taken over by dozens of small boys and their parents who were returning from a national baseball competition for (laughs) seven-year-olds. Those who travel a lot will (laughs) appreciate this. Their team had come in second, and emotions were high. So was the noise level. 
The kids were over the moon, and even their parents shouted to one another, sharing the scores of whatever game was on their Walkman. All the children had bags of fast food, french fries, and burgers. I sat among the shrieks and the high fives as french flies flew through the air, (laughs) and a desperate stewardess tried to get everyone in their seats so we could take off. I seemed to be the only stranger in this crowd. I was not happy. (laughs) (laughs) Seated next to me was a very heavy black woman with a cranky two-year-old. She seemed to be planning to hold this child on her almost non-existent lap all the way to San Francisco. This did not strike him as a great idea, and he let her know this at the top of his voice. It didn't strike me as a great idea either. Noticing that he had marked my slacks with his shoes, she shook him slightly and told him to hush and then take his shoes off. Standing, I found the stewardess and asked if I might change my seat. (laughs) But there wasn't another seat on the plane. Finally, we were able to take off. Dinner was served and turned out to be an ordeal. I had a Coke poured on me by a freckled, red-headed kid who mumbled, Sorry, Granny, as he ran down the aisle. Finally, my seatmate turned her toddler loose, and he disappeared forward amid the welcoming shouts of the older children. Reading or any sort of work was impossible. Resigned, I started a conversation with my neighbor, asking her about the baseball league. She began to tell me about the time she spends with the team, the hours of cheering them on, of going door-to-door to to raise money for equipment and travel, and why she was here now with two of her sons. You can't just keep having kids, she says. You've got to keep them alive. In her neighborhood, many boys were dead or locked away by 20, by 20 years of age, victims of drugs and violence. The league was her life insurance for her kids. I looked at her with new respect. She had four, all under the age of 10. The little guy was her baby. She asked me about my own life, and I told her about my work with people with cancer. A sadness filled her eyes, and she began to tell me about her neighbor, a woman like herself, a single mother with four little kids. Six months ago, she had been diagnosed with cancer. The chemo she has to take is terrible, she told me. It makes her so sick, sometimes she can hardly get out of bed. I sure hope she can make it through. She spoke of her neighbor's symptoms, her neighbor's fears, and nightmares that awakened her almost every night. As she unfolded the story, I began to wonder how she knew so many of the intimate details of her neighbor's life, and so I asked her this question. Her answer stunned me. When tragedy had struck next door, she had simply moved her children and all her children into her own home. They had been there for the past five months. I looked at her closely. There was not the slightest air of martyrdom or self-congratulation about her, just as natural reaching out to a person in trouble whose life was next to her own. Shortly afterward, her youngest returned, and she once again held him on her lap, feeding him French fries from his bag with her fingers until he fell asleep. After a while, the lights were turned down for the movie. Exhausted, many of the children had fallen asleep, and many of their parents were sleeping too. I took out my book, found some Christmas music on the headset, and began to read. We flew on over the heart of this country. After a while, I glanced over at my seatmate. She, too, had fallen asleep, her face beautiful and serene, her sleeping baby in her arms, clasped against her great belly. On his head was the gift the fries and burger company had given all the children, 
a paper hat in the shape of a small golden crown. The Buddhas of compassion are everywhere. That's it for a minute. May we all become Buddhas of compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.